Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. 10:06 on the clock. It's got a feel of a horse race in the air, really tight race, right? So how are markets reacting to the numbers that we're seeing with the US election? Is volatility falling our nerves settling will there be more gains to come we're going to check in with arun pai chief strategy officer at flow we're also going to be discussing ant group's ipo and of course uh, the results third quarter earnings of uob ocbc and dbs but first up good morning mr pai good morning michelle how are you i am doing well arun pai is chief strategy officer at flow so i was looking at uh, you know how markets were reacting and early overnight there was volatility in stock futures but then that was replaced by a broad rally we saw the s&p 500 up more than three percent the nasdaq 100 surging more than four percent so what do you think are nerves settling you know, it's it's really interesting to see uh, the odds of who is going to win the president really swing like crazy, right? Like if you just step back a day, well, two days now prior to the election, mm. Biden was going to have like a 70%, 75% odds of winning. That dropped to like 20% uh, late yesterday. And now today morning, uh, this is all Asia time, of course. Mm-hmm. And then today morning, it's like shot back up to like over 80% right now. And it's funny where you look at market reaction in comparison to that. Uh, looking at the start of the month, markets were already rallying. Sure, it had a pretty uh, you know sad uh, move downwards towards the closer end of October, but the markets were rallying before. Uh, even when the Biden win was going to be going towards Trump, markets continued rallying. Biden came back as a favorite. Markets are continuing to rally. And it takes me back to this quotation where, you know, Benjamin Graham, who is the father of value investing, his quote was, markets in the short run are like a voting machine. It keeps switching between popular versus unpopular. But in the long run, markets are a weighing scale that truly dictates what the value of the company should be and hence what the value of the share price is. Really funny and very interesting to Mm. see where the market, literally like the voting machine, where it swung left and swung right Democrats, Republicans, but yet the market still stayed steady on course, knowing fully well that interest rates are basically close to zero. Central banks across the world, governments across the world are pumping in a lot of fiscal uh, support. So there is that safety net in place. This would be a good time to start lifting equities specifically, be it technology, be it cyclicals, pretty much stuff across the board, right? As you mentioned, S&P, NASDAQ, across the spectrum, there was an insane rally yesterday, and it's been for the last couple of days too. Yeah, absolutely. I love that quote, by the way, Uh, beautifully said. Uh, People on the street are predicting more gains to come. What do you think? Uh, You know, in, in the short run, Anything goes, obviously. And this kind of like takes me back to this, uh, uh, you know, specialist or equity research analyst who had come on to CNBC a couple of days back. Hmm. And when the anchor asked him, I think his name was Tom Lee, and the anchor asked him, you know, what is your prediction for the election? And he was like, if Trump wins, it will probably be like a 10 to 15% rally to the end of the year. 
If Biden wins, it's probably going to be a 5 to 10% rally to, to the end of the year. And even if there's a stalemate, those markets will still go up 3 to 5%. And this guy was like scoffed off the show because, uh, you know, and the question literally was, okay, so if literally anything happens, the market will rally. And that just didn't make intuitive sense. But, you know, it's funny how the market can behave in the short run where literally anything can happen. So I have no idea, you know, what's going to happen be it the next day, the next week, or the next couple of months. I'm but, I think it's okay. Im- but I think it's important just to take a step back, mm-hmm. see what are the underlying forces that are dictating why money, and by markets, you know, we are referring to the equity markets here specifically, why uh, there are certain tailwinds for the market to go higher. So it seems right now that, you know, Biden is definitely in the lead. And even if that continues and he actually does manage to pull off becoming the president, excluding all these lawsuits and yada, 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 Mm. uh, there will be a lot more government spending, right? Which to me will eventually lead to uh, higher inflation. Now, of course, that's going to be balanced out by the fact that if Democrats do come in power, be it in the House and the president, uh, the presidential seat, we probably will see some amount of taxes going up. Again, I don't think that this will happen over the next six months, given the unique suffering that individuals are facing on the back of the COVID pandemic, but slightly longer term, right? Like say a year to two years. So if that happens, that could be negating inflation, but at the same time, just the sheer amount of government spending that will come in will definitely ensure that inflation in the long term will rise. But at the same time, central banks have clearly said that they're more than happy, or sorry, I should say the central bank in the U.S., the Fed, has clearly said that even if inflation spikes over 2%, which used to be their benchmark, they're still going to be very happy to keep interest rates at basically zero. So if that happens and interest rates stay basically at zero, floored at zero, it's like gravity to equity valuations, right? You drop interest rates down, gravity is down, stuff goes up. And that's what we're probably going to see in the equity markets, where we should, you know, bearing anything else crazy happening in terms of be it the COVID pandemic or crazy lockdowns, etc., we should be able to see a path higher. If current trends hold uh, and Biden wins the presidency, but the Republicans hold on to the Senate, we could still be looking at at least two years of a divided U.S. government. So we take a big picture approach. I mean, we heard Singapore's trade and industry minister Chan Chun Singh recently warning of economic risks should there be a pushback against globalization and that the world economic system may fracture or fragment because of that. So how do you think the result of this election could impact markets in Asia? You know, I I completely agree with that statement because, you know, the the genie is out of the lamp right now, regardless of be it a Democrat or a Republican that is uh, in power being as a president. And as you rightfully mentioned, the Senate is probably going to still be retained by the Republicans, the House probably with the Democrats. It's not going to stop the U.S. being very anti-China and trying to ensure that the Chinese market opens up a lot more. And we've seen that kind of rhetoric, not just from the U.S., but from countries across the globe, right, like Europe, uh, Japan, Australia, they are starting to push back a lot more 
to what they believe is a very one-sided relationship with China. So from the perspective of a country like Singapore that is heavily dependent on imports exports it will be very interesting to see where this ends up. And what I mean by that is one would hope that with a more seasoned politician like Biden in place it will at least give a little bit more clarity to the markets and the underlying economy as to what the direction the US is going down. So, you know, knowing your enemy is probably better for the markets than uh, a complete wild card. The wild card obviously being Trump, but you never know what the policy of the US is going to be dictated towards Asia, but at least with Biden there is going to be a little bit more the the aspect of like knowing what's going to be coming next. I think will be a little bit more prevalent. So, will it suddenly become you know back to what it was in 2016 probably not but at the same time i think companies will be a little bit more uh confident that they'll be able to make those capital investment decisions again uh there will be at least some amount of import export that comes back on track and hopefully the world can slowly start to begin healing itself from the crazy polarized uh divide that we are living in and this is not just in the US right if you look at Europe if you look at Brexit mm. uh countries across the world sadly so one would hope that over the next 2 to 4 years in spite of like the senate and uh the house being on opposing sides of the spectrum one would hopefully see like the world economy getting back on track uh covid is going to play a big part in that the vaccine is going to play a huge role in that and we can hopefully start rebuilding the economy in the right way All right, a divide as you mentioned, yes, sparked by information or misinformation. So, uh, you know, polarized world that comes back to the words that we use, right? And speaking of words, Jack Ma's blunt words cost him some 35 billion dollars. It would have been the world's biggest IPO, but that was derailed by China, uh, you know, really shaking its fingers at the billionaire, putting an end to to the IPO. The fintech giant scheduled to start trading on Thursday, but 48 hours before the There was a news that this was not going to happen on Hong Kong or in Shanghai and the news sparked a slide in Alibaba shares in New York as well dragged down other Chinese companies in US listed stocks. So when you heard of Ant Group's IPO being abruptly suspended just 2 days before the listing um What what struck you? I mean for me there was all that debate over what we hear so much about inclusivity that fintechs can bring, right? Micro lending to the guys who usually can't get a line of consumer credit and uh massing China's bankers are adverse to extending credit to smaller borrowers. Uh and the, this whole debate over inclusive financing I found interesting. What what stood out for you? You know what actually stood out for me was this is a massive call by the chinese uh, regulatory authorities to pull something like this off just a couple of days before the world's largest ipo is where you have these trillion dollar investment managers that have really taken a huge stake in this company or they were trying to take a huge stake in this company in the secondary markets it was something like i think 200 and 300 times oversubscribed ipo it's quite crazy that because of one person and sure you know he's the founder and ceo of the company for them to be able to stop this and i think that's actually from the grander scheme of things it's kind of like a step back to what one would have hoped 
with you know the Chinese economy opening up, uh, this would have been a huge, like massive boost to uh, Hong Kong, to China, to the fintech ecosystem in general. And it was interesting to see where, uh, you know, if this has hypothetically happened in like a Western economy, be it Europe or be it the US, sure, any comments being made prior to an IPO, like, you know, everyone knows that no, uh, leave alone the founder, but anyone from the company should not be making any kind of statements about the company or obviously regulators, etc. But it was kind of strange to see them actually stopping the IPO you know, a, a fine or something else would have been so much more apt given the statements that he made. And personally, being in the fintech industry myself, mm. he didn't say anything wrong, right? Like, sure, uh, should a company, should a, is regulation bogging down fintech? Or not, not regulation, but like the old school regulation. Is that bogging down the fintech, the growth of the fintech ecosystem? Yes. Did he ever say at any point that regulation should be stopped completely? Definitely not. Uh, was this a company that's basically grown way too big and the second it goes public, potentially China, with a lot of Western investors also, given the sheer scale of the IPO, would that have led regulators to not be able to control this, this beast that had basically grown so large within the Chinese ecosystem, would there have been systemic risks that they would not have been able to control? I would say that would have been the primary reason behind pulling off the IPO. I don't think it was just that statement. Mm. I think once more and more information got released about the sheer size and scale of what, uh, you know, the, what Ant and Financial mm. had brought to the Chinese ecosystem, and then the Chinese regulators seeing, okay, a lot of pension money uh, through uh, another Chinese government authority is going to be invested into this company, et cetera, et cetera. They were like, okay, let's take a step back and let's see how we can truly control this. And I think that was the primary reason that they just got afraid that this might be way bigger than even them. And in a country like China, where pretty much everything is controlled from the center, uh, that might have been one of the potential reasons. I'm just purely speculating over here. Of course, because in that meeting were only, I think, like four or five people. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that's the path that the regulators took. But it's, it's a pretty big one, right? Because you could see yeah. not just the effect on Alibaba, which is obviously expected. Mm -hmm. As you rightly mentioned, a number of other Chinese companies were take, were like, took a massive hit also. Because you never know now what the regulator is going to do. And uncertainty is never the friend of the market. Yeah, so you wonder, you know, was it worth it? I mean, clearly this is, as you say, the state sizing up the real power of fintech. But what does a move like this do to the growth of the fintech system in China? I was reading uh, Stephanie Yentio, she's Joint Managing Partner of TSMP Law Corporation, and she says, you know, surely the regulatory issues could have been sorted out prior to the IPO, and if even Jack Ma can be hobbled like this, smaller players must proceed with caution. Surely setting this tone uh, to other the players in the fintech system works against China? You know, I, I mean, just playing the devil's advocate over here, uh, being in a fintech startup, you can only wish and pray that you would even get to like one millionth the size of uh, Ant Financial for a regulator to even bother truly getting involved in your business, right? So from the perspective of a small or relatively small or decently sized uh, fintech company, it, it might not affect them that much 
as, as an immediate reaction to what happened to Ant Financial. But from the from the 30,000 feet in the air perspective, I think it is a little bit sad where you have, you know, China trying to like grow itself so much in the semiconductor, in deep tech, and fintech is one uh, industry or sector that they have absolutely, you know, are leap years ahead of the rest of the world, where we are still sitting and using like plastic cards and we are stuck with, you know, pretty much like old school, like 10-year-old, 20-year-old technology, China has just leapfrogged that entire uh, old school system. And and kudos to uh, Jack Ma, Alibaba, and Financial for being able to pull that off. Not just them, right? Like a whole host of other very large, uh, you can call them consumer technology companies that provide lending, which to me at least puts them in the fintech category. So from that perspective, it is a little bit sad to see a true success story that's grown by creating a product that basically became so addictive to people mm-hmm. that they had to use this through multiple facets in their everyday life. And suddenly the rug was pulled under the seat. So from that perspective, it's a little bit sad. From the perspective of like the smaller fintech company, you know, honestly, everyone's still hoping they come even remotely to the size of Ant Financial. So what's uh, what's next for Ant? So China's still Ant. You can't go public until that capital shortfall is fixed. Um, so when it comes to the business model for this fintech giant, which now by the way, has to reapply for licenses for units to operate across the nation in China, uh, how extensively is Ant going to have to overhaul its business to meet these new regulations? I think what's eventually going to happen, and probably not in the next couple of weeks or a month, this was a very, very stern slap in the wrist, or dare I say even face in this case, given the fact that they've stopped the IPO. I think there will be a lot of discussions at the, you know, extremely high upper echelons of the Chinese government and obviously Alibaba, Jack Ma himself will step up. But I can clearly see a path where in the next three to six months time, Mm -hmm. Jack Ma will go through down, you know, go down this whole uh, apologizing route. They will ensure that they start doing a little bit more impact, you know, lending, as you rightfully mentioned, where, sure, they'll take a bit of a hit in the margin, but trying to ensure that what the Chinese government wants from them in terms of lending to people who might not even be credit worthy, et cetera, will start taking place. There will be a huge, you know, song and dance around that. There'll be a PR campaign around that, I'm sure. But just given the size and scale of the company, I I truly can't see a way that this company doesn't still go down the IPO route, be it in like three months or six months time. It's just too big. My guest is Arun Pai. He is... uh... He is the man that we speak to to help us understand markets, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. All right, Arun, let's take a closer look at what's happening at home. Bring the discussion here. DBS and OCBC have both reported their third quarter earnings this morning. DBS profits dropped 20%. OCBC's profits down 12%. As an investor, how are you reacting to the news? You know, like the financial sector is something that I've been playing uh, or been paying, sorry, very close attention to purely as a value investor, right? This is something that we've talked about a number of times on your show in the past, where the multiples that these bank stocks, especially DBS, that's been they've been trading on, it gives you a reasonably large margin of safety to purchase the stock. And 
Were the results expected to be down? Absolutely. Did everyone know that the COVID pandemic is going on? Yes. Were NPLs or non-performing loans going to be spiking up? Absolutely. So from that perspective, I think the market had priced in a bit bigger of a doomsday scenario. Mm. And when you purchase something at a very reasonable valuation for the long run, Again, you know, I had no idea what the quarterly earnings of BBS were going to come out to be, obviously. Mm -hmm. But from the perspective of a long-term investor, knowing that you're buying something at quite attractive valuations, especially given to the rest of the market, it seemed like a value buy. And we could see, right, like even when uh, the quarterly earnings of all three banks were down anywhere from like 10 to 20 plus percent, uh, stocks have actually rallied quite substantially. I'm sure they had some kind of, uh, you know, tailwind from the U.S. election. But at the same time, because markets had priced in a little bit more of a doomsday scenario, along came the earnings. They weren't as bad as expected. People are trying to, like, pile in back to these stocks. I think DBS was up about 3% or is up about 3% today. Uh, dividends are carrying on, be it at a lower rate of what it was, say, uh, six months or a year ago, based on what MAS instructed them to try and start saving a little bit more capital and using that capital to lend money and not give money to shareholders, et cetera, through be it dividends or anything else. It, you could see why the odds were potentially in the favor of bank investors. So I think from a longer term perspective, given how, sure, the US, Europe are, you know, it, the COVID uh, wave two is coming back on, at least in Asia, it seems touchwood that we've got a much better handle of the situation. And if that can continue, uh, or and for that matter, a vaccine comes out over the next couple of months, which it's scheduled to, we can see at least the Asia growth story picking up a lot of steam. And that will enable banks listed in Singapore, DBS, OCBC, UOB, to try and take advantage of that situation. They have, you know, ironclad balance sheets Similar, I would say, to banks in the U.S., where they can start lending out money a lot more, let growth come back into the economy, let inflation slowly start creeping back up based on, you know, government spending. And then hopefully we can see these bank stocks start rallying quite a bit more in the long run. I love that hopeful picture. I love to end there. Arun, thank you so much for joining us this morning. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. I'll let you get back to the nail-biter race, Arun. I, I was waiting. Like, literally, I, I was sorry if I was going to be, like, distracted. I've got CNN. I've got Fox <laughs> on my TV and my, my laptop. So, let's say It'll be a fun next couple of hours. Yeah, it will be. Thank you so much, <laughs> Arun Pai, the man sitting in front of almost as many screens as I am, it sounds like. Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, right here on Money & Me. I'm Michelle Martin, and you're listening to Singapore's most influential radio station, Money FM 89.3. Before acting on the information on Money FM, Please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.